Shooting it raw? Yes. Shooting it raw. Welcome to Shooting It Raw. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think if you want to talk about photography, you've come to the right place. Because I've certainly uh, kind of uh, always carried a camera with me for 50 years. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe and sit I, a little closer. I just, uh, I just completed a 900-page book, which is on that screen for you. Like, why did I take all these pictures? And what do they mean? And it's... Um, I've come to the conclusion that it's very much about um, our quest for identity. And uh, so that first photograph that you have there is of uh, a little village in Austria where um, a, a large part of my family is from. And I always like to um, quote Donald Rumsfeld, uh, <laughs> uh, who call it uh, Old Europe. And he also used to say, we don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. Those are two good quotes. That's definitely old Europe, and uh, that's where we're from. And uh, I've been there, and certainly my 900-page book starts with a watercolor painting that my grandfather made there uh, later in life because he was, as I am, nostalgic about that place. Mm. So just so I can describe the image, uh, it's in black and white. You, your, your, your images are amazing. Do you mostly shoot black and white? Um, nowadays, I've always shot sort of half and half color and black and white. Nowadays, uh, in the digital world, it's actually quite uh, a challenge to get rid of the color. But uh, certainly 99.9% .9 of the book is black and white. So yes, I shoot black and white. Right. So the image is a landscape of, uh, so the title is The Illusion of Identity. And there's a bit of a dirt road leading up to uh, a very plain looking church-like edifice with a, it might not be a church but it looks like a, there's a steeple there's a cross at the top um, slightly I mean compositionally it's very classically composed uh, the eye is drawn you know from the road to these buildings uh, and there's like rolling hills on the on the right and uh, it's dated September 9th, 2020. Is it that recent? Or no, that that's the date of our meeting today. Oh, well, right. It is September 9th, 2020. But um, <laughs> I'm... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry that I, you've just I've stumbled into mentioning Eckhart Tolle's book The Power of Now okay. uh, which has influenced me over the years and uh, one of the central premises of which is there is no time there's only now I couldn't so agree with you more we're good with September 9th yeah but um, I, I I think the takeaway perhaps from our meeting today and it's great great to see you as always is that uh, I think um, on a number of occasions in my life I've I realized that it's really good and um, positive for people to enthusiastically engage their identity, be that, you know, a narrative of writing stories. A funny thing happened, uh, uh, not to, I hope this isn't Anything's protract good. Everything's too long. Good. I was jumping. teaching, okay, teaching. Uh, architecture at uh, Chinese University of all places, and, and the students were kind of, um, a lot of them were from the mainland, and I, I know they were brilliant because they were kind of selected because they're brilliant, but they were kind of falling asleep. So I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Let's forget about all the stuff that I was going to say. Next time, you guys come with a PowerPoint about yourselves. And uh, that was new for them. Mm -hmm. They were like, whoa, no one's yeah. ever said that. Next week, they came with the most amazing PowerPoints. And we had this explosive class where everyone was uh, shocking each other with the intense uh, kind of differentiation of their... Uh, personal identities. People were right. just happy to open up and right. uh, and uh, open the closet. Right. You know, it was just remarkable. And uh, so I'm going to do the same. Uh, and I have. That's what this book is about. It's just all about me, and I can't publish it because there's just so many details about people, some of whom I know would relish in suing me to Kingdom Come. But it won't be published. But for example, this church is a good example. My great grandfather was uh, was. Um, teaching there in the school. Unfortunately, his first wife, who was my great-grandmother, passed away at a very young age. So he married his maid, and uh, they had children as well. And there's a photo of all of them together 
in the book. But anyway, my grandfather learned to play the organ in that church. Oh, wow. So there's a very strong, uh, I guess because we are from Central Europe, uh, Old Europe, as Donald Rumsfeld said, Donnie, um, there's going to automatically be a connection to Catholicism, but also, as you know, the Jewish faith in a very uh, strangely integrated way, reaching way back probably all the way to Jerusalem. And um, so the organ is immediately, he, he learned to play the organ when he was six, and that's immediately connected with Catholicism. Uh, he didn't really become a good Catholic until uh, towards the end, you know, in Canada. The Jehovah's Witnesses used to come to our door in London, Ontario, where I was born, and they would say, hurry up, there's only 65,000 seats left in heaven. So uh, I think he I think he signed up for that because towards the end they were very religious. But the story I really like is this about Catholicism and um, with an Austrian heritage, uh, I guess the theme here is diaspora. Uh, we all, every human being has a diaspora. In fact, nature has this uh, entropic diaspora of coming from, a you know, the, the famous saying, in the beginning there was nothing and then it blew up. Right. I mean... We're on that trajectory. So um, he learned to play the organ. Uh, but my favorite story, uh, Catholicism, If you, you don't even need a magnifying glass. If you look at it, it's easy to be critical very quickly. Um, and so the relatives were buried there, right. a bunch of them. And they have wonderful stories, which I've documented for the children. In fact, our children were there when they were young. They thought it was creepy as hell. Mm -hmm. My great-grandfather's in the ground there? What are you talking about? Uh, but then we got to the point where the church was um, demanding 15,000 euros for every five years that our relatives really? lay there. Just to, Wow. And I said, done, done deal. But unfortunately, I was outranked by my father and my cousins who said, we're not giving the Catholic Church 15,000 euros. You know, forget it. So uh, what happens? What happens in Europe? Uh, it's, a, it's a rather macabre and fascinating uh, you know, what do you call that ritual? They were, they graduated to what's called the bone room. Okay. So it is, I mean, these are little stories that make, that differentiate a person's identity. My grandfather learned to play the organ in that church when he was six, and his bones are now in the basement underneath the organ. So that's just, there's diaspora within diaspora within diaspora. Sure. It's quite interesting, and everyone has it. It's and, not just me. I yeah. mean, I think that's a cool story. Mm -hmm. Other people might say, oh, no, no, Martin. But everyone has these stories, and especially in the mainland where people, um, you know, we Westerners, we all have prejudices, right. amazing prejudices. For example, our countrymen were here defending Hong Kong, and just recently I watched this documentary about the, the attack in December of 1941, and the Canadian soldiers um, thought that because Japanese eyes were a little bit more, uh, you know, slant slitted that they couldn't see at night, uh, <laughs> you know, which is just completely laughable. So of course the Japanese came over at night and, and, whipped their ass. and raised hell. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. the Japanese thought that the Canadians were effeminate and mm -hmm. afraid to fight. Ah, the Canadians put on a pretty good fight, actually. There was yeah. quite a sacrifice made here. And whenever I'm hiking in these hills, I think of them. First of all, they're buried here, sure, a mile away. And secondly, they fought here and. Uh, and uh, suffered a terrible... Defeat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, so many little places to digress from. And uh, this notion of diaspora, for example, with Pope, um, we, we're talking about like, with pressures on a community. And right now, Hong Kongers, being in Hong Kong, there is such pressure. And in a way, it's pushing a lot of people out. And it's creating, there's already a, a, a Hong Kong diaspora around the world from, say, in, the, in 1997 when people moved away or uh, leading up to 1997. And, and, you know, coming from Canada, there are, I grew up with, with Hong, well, now I think of them, they're like pretty prototypical Hong Kongers and you know, the kids I grew up with. I was like, oh yeah, those are, those are obviously Hong Kongers. Uh, one of my ex-girlfriends was a Hong Konger or her mother was a Hong Konger. So the notion of the diaspora the Hong Kong diaspora now beginning to, to kind of to coalesce or to, to happen even greater the more that Hong Kong is repelling uh, people 
Yes, yeah, so I think different, you know, and me being, you know, you know, born in Jerusalem and the whole, you know, the Jewish diaspora, which is all that, all that as well. I mean, I think you're you're definitely hitting onto something um, quite integral to human, because in a way, we're humans move, like we are we are known as a species, we're, or we are a species that is kind of you know immigrated and and explored the world and all this stuff. So so interesting that that you link it back. To was it Saint George Georgian? I guess Georgian. Under so, Klaus Austria. Yeah, Austria, yes. Right, right. And where did I come from? Okay. Well, I, I'm. Uh, yeah, that's under. There are three questions here. Huh. Um, where did I come from? Who am I? And how do you recognize me? Th- those are the questions that go with the three images. But I'm very glad that you raised Jewish diaspora, and uh, I have. Um, you know, it just depends how far back we go. I have a very close connection with Jerusalem. I had this funny experience where I was visited. We, we are connected through James Bradbury, the director of the Pinacoteca de Brera Museum in Milan. And one of his good friends is uh, Clive, Clive Britton. Right. And he's friends with Poe. That's Clive, how our, yeah, right. our connection uh, goes back to the Brera. And in the Brera, there's a photo in my book of me standing in front of this painting of the crucifixion and it was funny when I went I used to go to Jerusalem on a business I had the privilege of working with these amazing architects in uh, Tel Aviv and I would always go straight to Jerusalem and so often I would do a hero shot in front of this painting at the Brera this magnificent painting of the crucifixion the next day I'd be standing there in the same real spot Mm -hmm. in Jerusalem which uh, you know it has such enormous symbolic meaning for so many people, and it has in the past. It's the foundation of Christianity and the Roman Empire and the Holy Roman Empire and Europa, as I yeah. call it. Yeah. But actually, when you're there, it's it's like the demolition site over there. Of course, it's, it's a gravel pit. Yeah, of course. And there, and there's like you know, there's a corner store where you could buy yourself a popsicle or, or a goat. And, yeah. So people, so that's one of the things that's that's amazing about Jerusalem uh, is that. It's so like you walk around and it's steeped in this history, and you it's very palpable. You definitely feel it. Um, yeah, it's a uh, I, I would I would never live there. <laughs> it's way too uh, high strung, but yeah, it, it's a huge subject. It's almost kind of like a bottomless pit, and uh, it, I don't want to ignore. I'd like to go back to your question, which is a a really good question. I am equally interested in the Chinese diaspora, which is what I would call it. You know, it's probably the best story I have to tell. And it involves my mother, who was in um, who was in public school in Vienna. And uh, she met this um, uh, a very rich Jewish child uh, w- along with her sister. And they kind of adopted my mother and her sister. And they became friends for life to this day. Uh, they're very close friends, and I'm privileged to get copied on some of the emails and uh, there not only do they have a story one of one of the most profound books that I've ever read is The Hair with Amber Eyes which talks about um, East meets West Japan and France and the whole uh, history of uh, modern art and Monet and anyway it's a must read and it's about it's just mainly the story about the Afrusi family and uh this family that my mother knew in Vienna were friends with the Afrusis. They were larger than a historian has just spent five years reading their, uh, writing their history, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm looking forward to it. It'll be some version of the hair with amber eyes. She, uh, for obvious reasons, they left for the United States via Paris in 1938. And uh, later in life, she had a student uh, called Bob Kwok who... Um, who she taught English, and she recommended him to my grandparents, all four of them. And he met his wife in Paris, and uh, and he was very influenced by this connection uh, with Europe through my grandparents in Vienna. And he uh, wrote a uh, thousand-page memoir of his life, uh, which is basically a Chinese diaspora of a concubine who left China and uh, there's some generations in San Francisco and then and then where we cross is this nexus point of well, my grandparents sure and um, so also of course 
uh, Serena I met in Toronto who had, their family had um, moved to Canada amongst other things, I think to uh, have a way out in case what's happening now in Hong Kong mm-hmm. happened then when mm-hmm. it was supposed to. Um, and so that's how we met in wow. architecture school. And then uh, I've often said when I when I got married with Serena, I married Hong Kong and China. And we had 20 wonderful years here of uh, that included a lot of travel to China, which was incredibly inspiring. Sure. And uh, there's a China section there with photographs that are... In your book. Yeah, in yeah, your yeah. book. They're largely... Um, in factories mm. and and other unsavory places right. in the shadows, uh, which I'm uh, very passionate about. We also lived in East Germany for a couple of years. There's a wonderful overlap between East Germany in the at the just as the wall came down with China 25 years ago, right. 30 years ago. We first went to China in 1985, which is about 35 wow. years ago, and uh, boy, has it changed. Sure. So when we talk about diaspora. Because I've been thinking a lot about it lately, starting in a way with the hair with ember eyes, um, it's layers and layers mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. layers of different diaspora to the point that there isn't one. Certainly the Jewish one is the most celebrated because in the culture there is um, this passion and need for knowledge and mm. the recording and organization and retelling of knowledge. So it's a very well-documented diaspora. but. You know, my my friend Bob Kwok sadly passed away. He was able to put down easily a thousand pages. I helped him because he wanted photographs of some of the art. My grandfather was uh, a surgeon, but he painted, and uh, and Bob wanted photographs right. of the painting. And there's a page where I just took page 583 out of his book and glued it into my book. Right. And so there's that wonderful nexus of diaspora, which which made it clear to me, even in my own life, that these Everyone is really a lot of people are talking about diaspora, and mm-hmm. it's all it's uh, layered into a kind of an infinite, um, infinite human story. Right. In fact, I called the book um, "One Life, Black and White" because they're black and white photographs. Sure. Originally, it was my life, but when I start to think about all of these uh, stories and the universality of them. It, it very rapidly gets you to the version that all life is one. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that could take us to India. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, yeah, so the next photo, uh, excellent segue, by the way. Uh, in this photograph, it's a very powerful one, uh, which I know you, you told me uh, is, it was made in India. So it's essentially a girl who's begging. You're sitting in, the, I guess, the driver's seat or in the passenger seat, um, making a photo out of the car, through the window and she's holding on to the, to the door at level with the where the window comes out of the door and behind her head is the is the celebrated uh, mirror that says you know objects in mirror are closer than they appear and it's a very powerful image how about you talk about you know the fact that she's gesturing for food but you know the which you write you know the, the irony in the words in the mirror which you didn't really notice until a week later looking at the photograph. So so what's in this photo that really captures your... Well, I think um, it was a beautiful moment because it was a very powerful connection between two people, mm-hmm. her and me. Uh, I was at a conference, full disclosure, they provided a bodyguard, and we um, explored some truly unsavory areas in Mumbai, and uh, he was driving and I was a passenger, but it was incredibly relaxed, relaxed on a deep sort of Buddhist level, uh, cliche as that may sound. Uh, it was completely peaceful. That's what she does all day long. By the way, uh, she looked like she was getting enough to eat, but but it's probably wrong to say that. It's symbolic of um, the fact that not everyone has enough to eat. For sure. And, uh, but um, then... It was just a very, the sunlight being what it was and, and warm and uh, no, no tension. It was a beautiful connection between two people. Mm. Uh, slow motion, I would say. Yeah. And I, I took, I had plenty of time to just uh, take her picture. And then uh, it wasn't until I, I wasn't looking at the mirror. When I got back to Hong Kong, I saw these words, objects are closer than they appear. And I thought, yeah, exactly. Right. Absolutely right. But then um, later, uh, it also speaks to my sort of narcissistic 
view of the world. In fact, everything I've said is like, look at your own narrative that you're writing of your own identity, and, and that's a, a large part of your world, which, uh, which is narcissistic. And, and that word came from Narcissus, who looked into the reflection uh, in the water and uh, fell in love with his own image to the point that he didn't even know if he was himself for his own image, which ties perfectly with Bert Baudrillard, and we've been talking a lot about that as architects who blurred the line between simulation and reality to the point that now a lot of people are saying the simulation is the reality. Mm -hmm. So all of that is there in that reflection and uh, in the whole kind of um, mirror experience. Right. I'm interested in symmetry. Nature is filled with nothing but uh, broken symmetry. Sure. It doesn't actually make things um, perfectly. Right. left and right and uh, so there is that element of imperfect narrative uh, which fits our stories perfectly mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on an aesthetic level it's a powerful photo because of her expression like the shape of her face like it's very it's, she has an arresting face it's also the the, the she, she's holding up her hand and look, it almost looks like a claw right so it's a, it kind of the gesture that you can see as a like I said, I'd say an anthropologist or a primatologist might see as, you know, a very kind of fundamental, like, gesture of give me food. So there's that, you, you, you have that rawness, um, you have the interplay of, of, of the reflection. I think, yeah, it just... I'm glad you picked up on that because there's one more, more point that has been a theme in my recent thinking, which is that uh, at the end of the day we are uh, part of, a product of, and part of nature. And nature, um, it's our entire universe, beautiful as it is, and uh, incomprehensible as it is. There are also, also in terms of housekeeping, some or unfortunate truths mm -hmm. in nature. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for example, the competitiveness. I was hiking yesterday. I hike here in the hills almost every day, and I was hiking, and these ants... Hundreds of ants were ripping apart a worm to eat it, and the poor worm was just, uh, you know, uh, his his number was up. Yeah, and um, that pervades uh, nature. Yes, of course she has to eat, and um, if humans don't have enough food, you don't want to be there to see what happens. Uh, nature has this um, imperative of uh, survival, survival of the fittest, even, and it's. It's in the DNA, the whole kind of mating game um, mm -hmm. about uh, the DNA, it's DNA itself uh, not being moralistic, taking away all morality from the DNA as a chemical event. Uh, now, when I say chemical event, it has 10 to the 100th uh, possible variations, which is a very large number. But nevertheless, um, it has uh, its own imperatives that are profoundly influence our lives. Mm. Uh, we know that, and we kind of almost take it for granted. But yes, that's there in her face too. Uh, sure. Maybe she did have enough to eat, but not everyone does. Yeah. And um, that's uh, not a pretty picture. Yeah, well, one of the ways that we can sort of cleave into here, into our conversation, one of the people that I'm trying to get on the podcast is Richard Dawkins. Right, who wrote the selfish gene, and just that, that kind of echoes what you're just saying. Um, there's also the idea of civilization. Here we are on the 12th floor. We're looking down at a, a, a very kind of industrial part of Hong Kong. And just behind, you see these super green hills. So all that's you know, it's all the backdrop of our conversation. And and yet, I was I was reading a science writer who was talking about how even physics. Even, even something as theoretical physics is essentially biographical. You know, I had Adrian Bajan on the podcast. and He said though, it. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? Like, so, so it's, there are all these echoes of, you know, the narcissism and the reflection, the perception here. Um, what, one thing that the people don't know who are kind of discovering you through the podcast is that you're trained. Well, I love your, your personal history. So you, like me, are Canadian. You are older than me. You went through the Air Force. And, and, and in terms of your identity, one area of your identity is tied to jets and flying and being, being a pilot, which I find fascinating. And you also have this 
strong technical, tactile, mechanic appreciation that comes out in your work and your photographic work, but you're also an architect. So let's segue from, from the photo of the girl. How does that feed the art that you make? So as a photographer, some of the photographs are classic, nice, beautiful snaps, but then collage sculptural work that you have is just blow mind blowing. And so if you if you're listening to the podcast, go online and see the image, the third image, which is called Glorious Control, because it is mind blowing. So let's talk about that. Thanks. Uh, that's uh, thanks for the kind uh, intro. Yeah. Um, I, I don't really know where to start with that. You're right to start with the jet engine. Uh, I love the jet engine. It's a on the one hand, it's an incredibly simple idea. Uh, it was invented in parallel by the Germans and the uh, British. The German one was far superior. And uh, it, it, it um, creates this um, superhuman power. It's just amazing. 36,000 horsepower in, in your hand, uh, which is used to fly around and, um, and fight with another guy who has one just like it, which is back to that nature, that basic... Uh, instinct to prevail and we could have a long conversation about the Cold War that we won't have but uh, certainly a lot of that technology that when I was in the Royal Canadian Air Force we were in the middle of the Cold War and uh, so these jets uh, were kind of weapons du jour I think things have moved on by now 40 years later but um, and that uh, I love that kind of ironic title glorious control uh, which um, implies, of course, that we don't have that much control. It's all very subjective. It's hard to kind of sum it up in one succinct sentence, but basically the um, that there's, that's based, that, that piece on the wall there is called J-58, which is based on some photographs that I took of the J-58 engine at the Duxford American Air Museum of the SR-71 engine, which is, we talked about low-tech when you start up. It's actually reasonably low-tech. Uh, it, it should be said on a more poetic level that aviation and jet engine technology um, is a nice follow-on from uh, Adrian's talk because it's all about fluid dynamics. It's one very simple idea that was first uh, recorded by Bernoulli, which is that when, um, if you think about air as a, a bunch of particles, um, if a bunch of particles of air are going the same speed, but one has to go a little bit further, then there's a drop in pressure on that one. And that's a beautiful kind of law of nature, quote unquote. And that's the basis of all aviation, jet engines and sailboats. And, uh, and it's a beautiful thing. And where it becomes profound is in um, boundary layer separation. Even in um, one of the plug for one of the um, great Canadians, Anton Davies, who runs a... Um, a wind tunnel uh, consultancy in Guelph. And he said to me not that long ago that one of the things they cannot fully simulate on computers is the effect of wind because they don't really know what's happening in the molecular level between the surface and the fluid. So air is actually a non-compressible fluid until supersonic. So that's just the basics of aviation and engine technology that it's that it has this poetic uh, foundation in physics yeah uh, most of it was discovered by the germans in wind tunnels mm. in the 1930s let me ask you a very difficult question what i would say is practically i mean a, a, a kind of question that if somebody had asked me i wouldn't know where to begin so in the third image because it's a podcast and there's so much going on Describe what a person would see. So somebody who's listening to this while driving or whatever has a frame of reference to imagine if they were standing in front of a canvas or whatever, the light box, because it's so printed, I guess, on light boxes. Um, what, what does the eye perceive? So that is fairly easy. One of my favorite artists is Joseph Cornell. What you're really looking at is a Cornell box. We're in the Cornell building. And we're in I the love Cornell it. building. Yeah. <laughs> 
this so in good. fact is one giant Parnell box. Okay. And there, there are some other uh, great artists in the building who are in different compartments of the box. So that is a Cornell box, and some of those details are actually my mother's dining room cabinet with some of my favorite objects placed in them. So when we're zooming in on this question of, of identity and our narrative of our identity, uh, Cornell uh, very rightly identified our attachment to objects, material objects, as helping us uh, to define uh, our identity. That's part of what he was doing, and that's what you see there is some of my favorite objects. So it's actually, it looks complex, but it's actually quite simple. It's a lot of my favorite stuff. At the same time, now we're in this era of um, the codification of knowledge, and uh, our friend Clive Britton is happy to talk about that because he's just written a book on the codification of music and um, that is a very powerful language of the codification of knowledge because it's transferred over generations very profound individual and collective emotions like uh, Mozart and Beethoven there's something in that music and and we are now uh, you know with our phones in the era where uh, large where we are divesting large chunks of our knowledge to machines mm. so that's definitely a theme there as well uh, as uh, there's the blur of our identity and the identity of the machine and it's a playful abstract blur mm. uh, it's a kind of random association it's not a textbook and um, I think that's you know uh, that's why I called uh, this session today the illusion of identity which is we make it up you know but it's not um, written in stone. Sure. I have a colleague who's constantly making the reference to uh, Moses' tablets, you know, where things were written in stone. Right, right. Actually, it's myth and uh, nothing is written in stone, right. even in physics. Well, yeah, so life, life, yeah, life is collage, sure. So uh, just to give more of an anchor, so essentially what it is is uh, you print very large. So it's roughly, I guess, one meter by almost two meters or one and a half meters large. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's in black and white and very rich, uh, cool black and white, verging on on a bit of cyan in, 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 the, in, the, in the black and white. In this particular image, uh, you have an impossible array of mechanical, uh, you have like, I can I can make out a a, a kind of a, a display in a, in a jet, uh, various controls, um, cabinets as you say, like you know valves and tubing, and it's all it's all metallic uh, and overlaid or vaguely, very you know kind of ephemerally overlaid at the sort of a top third is this, this face where somebody wearing sunglasses. Is it you? Or yes. Is it, it is you. Okay. Uh, and it, you're, you're, it's you a self-portrait. So this series, how many images in, the, in this series of these kinds of, of um, well, constructions? So that that's uh, fairly easy to answer. We're picking up again from Baudrillard, the, yeah. the simulacra, the simulation. Uh, I also like quoting Bono, better than the real thing. Mm -hmm. And so these are, uh, you asked about architecture earlier. I think for me, one of the main takeaways of architecture was that when I got in, we started to um, model everything in three dimensions. Mm -hmm. And now the entire industry has slowly but surely adopted three-dimensional technologies so that the information about the built environment is a three-dimensional representation. And if you go far enough with it, uh, we're now talking about common data environment and um, my friend Emidio at Bureau Happold, who says the data is the real thing. Okay. And, um, and that's all well and good. These, uh, these things are real objects. And uh, some of the nicer ones are animations from uh, many objects. Like I make three-dimensional mandalas that move. So all of this computer technology very easily can can allow us to do explorations that are moving and that are rule-based increasingly uh, so we can accelerate the rate at which we innovate by codifying the rules of how things, how dynamics work. And uh, that is all partly in there because I did draw a lot of the stuff. A lot of that stuff on the wall is drawn in three dimensions on okay. the computer okay. and can move and um, is most importantly is reflective. I love reflections, which goes back to the mirror. 
uh, although I didn't see the mirror when I took that in the second photo, but uh, someone once said of me, oh yeah, that's Martin. He likes shiny things. Mm -hmm. And it's true because the whole narcissistic look, there's also the, um, you know, the word druggy, which is that it is possible for people to uh, alter neural synapse transmission. The way we see the world is, uh, is a very fragile construct. Uh, our eyes, one eye sees the world and one side of the brain uh, does the seeing part. And then the other side of the brain in seven tenths of a second tells a story about what that eye is seeing. Mm. But you can, you can scramble that or distort it slightly and then reality might be something else. In the simulation, where all these variables can be managed in the computer, all of that is there. And so that's in the image, too. So, so you reference the ghosts in the machine, right? So is that more of this idea that you have the, the tactile, physical, mechanical, and that what's overlaid or a residue of what's happening is consciousness or is like what's what's your understanding of that part of the question yeah absolutely uh we're certainly dancing back and forth across that line uh, what is real what do we decide to be real what do we call real um the nice thing about uh one of the things that i i really like to do is to make uh, very slow animations we decided not to do it on this one but where images dissolve into other images. Mm -hmm. And there's this beautiful moment of cognition when we understand what an image is. Mm. And um, that just shows how subjective the whole thing is. Uh, we're always defaulting to an image that we recognize, but uh, actually the world can be a very uh, tentative experience, really. And that's, again, why I said the illusion of identity. So these technologies and art in general allows people to take a, comfortably take a safe departure with their seatbelts on from what, what they experience uh, as their day-to-day -day reality and completely turn it upside down. Mm. When you work as an architect, and, and if I were to look at, at your work as an architect, which often you don't have the, the freedom because of a client's needs, the boundaries of actually having to produce a, uh, a tangible product or result at the end. Can you cite examples of how you, you this manifested in your architecture? Um, it's pretty abstract. It's yeah, pretty architecture is a pretty broad subject and it can mean many things to many different people. I The way my career played out is that I worked with a couple of well-known architects and spent a lot of time with them, Frank Gehry, Norman Foster, and uh, Calatrava. But really, I think all of that work, what I was doing there, was very much um, three-dimensional kind of uh, design and delivery in three dimensions. So really, for me, just from my experience, not to, not to lecture what other architects might say, I think one of the main takeaways is that... Uh, we are conceiving architecture more and more as a three-dimensional construct in a computer, a virtual uh, prototype. Mm -hmm. And um, that can then be uh, output to machines that make it. Right. Uh, and uh, there's an example, one project that I, I had some contact with, uh, again, uh, mentioning Emidio the second time at Bureau Happold, is the Morpheus Project in uh, Macau, a City of Dreams hotel facade that project was designed by the Zaha Hadid office, and they use this parametric technology to, uh, as, as one tool in a kind of generative architecture. And um, when the contractor, when the mainland Chinese contractor came to build it, he said, threw up his hands and said, uh, it's impossible. And uh, it was impossible. It was one and a half million double curved pieces, no two the same. Mm. So... Um, some people that I was working with uh, automated the generation of the fabrication information. So that's not drawings. It's the G-code. It's what you tell the machines to make the stuff. And um, the machines um, made it perfectly to the point that it was installed to 
plus or minus one millimeter tolerance, which is impossible. Mm-hmm. It doesn't exist in construction. And there were only four uh, RFIs, requests for information from the site. Most buildings, your garden variety building would have 18,000 RFIs. So this was a an awakening. It was a moment of realizing that that this information had the perfection of something made by a machine. It right. Was, it was machine-made information that was perfect wow. and that people couldn't make. So where I think things are going in architecture, it's not my idea, that's what my community is doing, is that part of the codification of knowledge is to tell machines how we want certain things done and they're better at certain things than we are and uh, we are um, kind of... Um, there's a word for that when you... Uh, it was a word in the. I was in. I was in officer training in the military, and there's a word for when you get someone else to do something. Hmm. Uh, I forget what it is. Like but anyway, delegate. You mean? Yeah, delegate. That's the word. We we are delegating to machines sure. things that they do well. Yeah. And that theoretically, uh, I know people think, oh, is that going to replace us? No, it it presents uh, exponential new opportunities for innovation because right. we don't. We can go to places that we couldn't normally go. It goes back to the jet aircraft. Right. You can fly 600 miles an hour on the on the surface of the, uh, you know, 10 feet above the surface of the ocean. You can't do that without a jet. Of course. And uh, similarly, the built environment, getting back to architecture, is now moving into a realm where the scale and complexity uh, will, will uh, integrate this uh, machine capability for managing that amount of information mm-hmm. so it it will it will it's a kind of a revolution to right. uh, accelerate the rate at which we innovate i mean that's kind of what was happening in architecture for me right do you buy into this idea that people have separate selves dependent on the context right so for example there's the self of you in a jet and there's the self of you uh, as an employee in an architectural firm, there's a self of you as, a, as an artist. Um, so you, how many languages do you speak? Two and a half. Two and a half. German is my mother language. Okay. I speak English relatively well and I, I mutilate the French language. Okay. I feel like I'm a slightly different person depending on the al- language that I speak. So when I speak French, I'm a different person than I am when I speak Eng- uh, Hebrew. And when I speak English, I'm, a, again, a very different person. In a way, the tools and the concepts and everything that I can tap into to, to express ideas shapes my thinking and therefore my, my behavior. And whatever. Is, is there an analogy in that in terms of your different selves? Absolutely. I mean, uh, just having finished this 900-page book about uh, basically all the people I met, imagine remembering as many people you can that you met and writing a page about them. Uh, we are very much a product of the, the people we meet mm-hmm. and uh, our parents, our grandparents, our family. We're a product very much of our environment and our experiences. And that's why they're so beautiful. They differentiate us. That, that's why we're not robots, because we have this spectacularly complex inheritance of experience, uh, including DNA. And even, you know, I've spent so much time uh, with my mother talking about the inner workings of her mother. It's... Uh, it's fascinating, and, uh, and and interestingly, I see a lot of that in our daughter, um, but you don't have to. You might. It's not a given. It's not a rubber stamp. But again, in the computer, it is a... Uh, the computer, ultimately, inside the computer is mathematics, and uh, we all know that uh, mathematics is this beautiful tool we have for modeling the universe. I, I uh, was using the morph command which is quite simple, where one surface is turned by the computer into another surface. But what we're talking about a lot, my friends and I, is the mistakes, the misalignments, where things go wrong, Mm -hmm. uh, because that is really just the emergence of a layer of complexity in nature. A good example from fluid dynamics is turbulence. Uh, When um, when we were talking about the wing has this laminar flow, is the boundary layer separation when that when that laminar flow turns into turbulence? Uh, there's not lift anymore, and you don't know what's happening. And they even even in the F104, they had little holes at the back of the wing, 
that sucked in the air to, to delay boundary layer separation, and that was a huge military advantage. So all of these mathematical, uh, we're always, I also love to quote Dennis Hopper in Apocalypse Now when he says, you can't get to the moon and to Mars with fractions, you know, uh, with numbers. And uh, for example, the atom bomb, I was just saying, at the end of the day, notwithstanding Einstein's thinking and mathematics, at the end of the day, you just shoot a fistful of U-238 at another fistful of U-238 and kablooey, the power and glory of God emerges, you mm. know, a huge amount of energy. So uh, it does get back to simulation and simulacro, what's a simulation and what's real, but certainly the computer is a wonderfully seductive tool because it just accelerates, I mean, Everyone's carrying around 50 billion transistors in their phone. That's mm -hmm. just unbelievable. And um, it, can, it can accelerate the way at which we explore the world around us and getting back to what you said, and really this sort of main subject of our talk today is identity, the complexity of identity, the infinite complexity of identity. Certainly all of those characteristics that you talk about and many more go up to um, make up our identity. Right. And so it, it could be difficult and overwhelming and overpowering, uh, overpowering if you overthought it. And right. uh, I think most of us don't. Right. One of the things that, one of the themes that emerges from the podcasts, at least, because it's, it's based in photography and, and image making and, discuss, and discussing, is the role of memory. So here you have this book, uh, you said 900 pages, 900 pages with all these images, with text. Memory is imperfect. So for example, in, in a previous or a future or whatever podcast, I, one conversation I had was uh, with an old pro performance uh, member with me and we were a performance group and he has all these photographs of a certain period of time and he sent me the photograph. And it was really bizarre because I looked at that photo and I couldn't recognize my face. And I was sure that the female who was in the photo was my, my ex-girlfriend. And he's like, no, 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 that's not your ex-girlfriend. That's not Janine, that's Victoria. And I'm just like, are you sure? So then it was a, it was a competing, like, whose memory? Because this was like 20 years ago. And it was this competing, okay, so we're, we're perceiving, we have the same photograph I'll, I'll give it to him because my memory is a lot weaker because of my you know, brain injury and all that stuff. But when you're going back to, to all these photographs, 900 pages, and you're constructing your identity, or reconstructing your identity, and how does imperfect and, and yet a photographic in a way is a perfect record? It's, I think of it, uh, it's a great question. I mean, I love the question. I'm probably living the question. The question is probably the story of my life and my identity, but uh, it's a mnemonic. Uh, it triggers uh, memories, but of course we're rewriting, just like fundamentally our biological beings are rewriting reality for us every seven-tenths of a second. There's a wonderful, there's a wonderful kind of quote-unquote fact, which is that Michael Schumacher requires seven-tenths of a second to take his foot from the gas to the brake. That's a magic number, uh, kind of written in stone, if anything is. Uh, we're constantly um, writing a story of what reality is, and at the same time writing a story of what identity is. But of course, it could be anything. And people who say, oh, you create your own your own destiny, uh, yeah, we do. And uh, so it's just a matter of how deeply you want to engage that and how you want to engage it. Uh, we are still a society, and we require cooperation with community to uh, act as a group because it gives us a lot of support on many levels. But, uh, you know, it could be anything. The sky's the limit. And in a way, that's why art continues to be so important. Um, when I think of films like um, 2001, Stanley Kubrick, almost everything in that movie, um, at the time, I saw it when it came out in 1968, and uh, it all seemed kind of impossible and amazing, and now it's old hat. Uh, so... Science fiction is basically, as we've all agreed, kind of just writing the not-so-distant future. And so I used to say in my lectures to students, be careful what you wish for. Our intuitions, our powerful intuitions about positive energy are very important. So I don't know. Did I answer your question? 
Um, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's it, you know. I think what we're doing is we're, we're ruminating, but it's also like, to see what kind of thought emerges. So, talking about the illusion of identity, look at your three photographs, right? So, on the one hand, it's this record of almost to like the roots, which is pr- profoundly non-technological in a way. It's like this this scene of sky and earth not not filled with houses there's one church building there may be a barn maybe another building behind that very serene jump to a photograph in india where it's essentially more more mechanical you're in a car coming coming into very close intimate contact with with this girl who is obviously poor and obviously separate from that technological access and then the third image which is this impossibly complex overlay uh, and ghost, ghostly image of a, of, a, of a man in this massive technical machine. So if we're talking about the illusion of identity, how do you wrap that up in terms of, of, uh, of, of your story, in terms of your development? I'm not sure that it ever gets wrapped up. I don't know. Listening to you uh, sum up, I was thinking of Roland Barthes and uh, mythologies. I think mythologies are these uh, larger themes that we can latch on to. Um, and I was going to, I don't know why I was going to uh, just end on um, Eckhart Tolle, who talks about presence with a capital P, meaning that there is this deeper, almost divine, if you will, essence uh, within humanity. But of course, um, what I love about Tolle's book is that at the start of his book, he says, hey, look, these are just a bunch of words. And this this presence, this essence that I'm talking about, you couldn't describe in words. And, um, of course, even that is a mythology. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, you know, we operate on individual or collective mythologies, and all of these things plug in one place or another. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.